So once again, uh, uh, welcome. And in, in the context of this value that I was sharing around accessibility and inclusivity, I think it uh, also speaks to what we're doing as we come together as community. When, when you reflect on it, probably many of us, probably all of us have shared values. And this is why we come together. And not only shared values, but shared practices, like we'll share a practice this evening together, the practice of meditation. And at the same time, you could say that we're located differently in having the value of that. Like, right, we're, we're located differently physically, all of you here on Zoom, all over the country. And here, probably over Flagstaff, we might be here right now, but we're located differently. Uh, physically, but also there's different social locations, which I want to acknowledge in terms of gender, class, race, age. And I feel like it's those differences that create community. Like what comes to my mind is probably many of you know what we do here towards the end of our Monday nights as we get together for our little discussion. And that time of discussion for me, has the sweetness of both of those, if we have shared values. But for me, it's a time to get a sense of um, uh, tapping into our collective wisdom together that is nurtured and nourished by both those similarities and differences. And just in light of this, I want to give one advertisement, a shout out. We're going to have a and there's a flyer up there when you leave. What's called? Maybe you saw this. Maybe this morning. Maybe some of you saw the the, the flyer for the practice parlor, which is going to happen at the end of July, and it'll both be online and in, in person. And it will just be a chance for us to come together on a Thursday evening, sit a little bit, and have a discussion. And it is for kind of past volunteers, present volunteers, and future volunteers. And I want to acknowledge, like, all you need to do to be a future volunteer is to have a little aspiration. So you don't like to have to commit to anything. So I want to <laughs> share with you the looseness of uh, coming to that. And, and please pick up a flyer. And at the end, I'll put that in the chat, too, for those of you who are on Zoom. Tonight, I want to focus on two facets that also got evoked from us coming together in this way. And the first one that I want to begin with is maybe the obvious. It was obvious for me of what gets evoked around this, which is the value of community, of Sangha. And for those of you who don't know, Sangha is this Pali word, Pali being the early scriptural language of Buddhism, which in, for the intents and purposes of tonight simply means community. And some of you might know, almost in uh, all schools of Buddhism, it's one of the three refuges. It's my practice to go to refuge in community because it supports my spiritual aspirations. And maybe, like me, you might know what helps me remember about my spiritual path? Community, friends. That's what carries me along. And one story about the importance of community. Some of you might know the story. It's a great story. 
once upon a time, there was a monk, it was a quite young monk by the name of uh, Megia. And Megia, for this day, was the, he was the attendant for the Buddha. And usually, the Buddha's attendant was Ananda, and Ananda was the, uh, uh, the Buddha's cousin. But for some reason, on that day, Ananda was somewhere else, maybe he was sick, and he couldn't be the Buddha's attendant, so Megia was filling in. And remember, he's a younger monk, a little bit different approach to practice, not so, you know, uh, not much depth of understanding of this path and this practice. And Megia and the Buddha go on alms round. So in the mornings, what's traditional is monastics before the noonday go and beg for food, and they're on their alms round. And on the way back, they pass this mango grove. Has anyone ever seen a mango tree? For some of them, they're really quite striking, right? They can offer quite a bit of shade. And Megia sees this mango grove, and he's filled with kind of inspiration to practice, to meditate. And they get back, eat their alms food, and Megia says to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, I, I really want to practice. Like, I want to meditate. This is what this path is about. And I saw that mango grove, and I want to go back there and meditate uh, for the day's abiding, for the afternoon. And the Buddha responded in a really interesting way, especially for the Buddha. He says, um, Magia, I, I wonder if you could wait. Wait until somebody else comes to attend upon me. Please don't leave me alone and just wait. And I want to pause here in the story because I want to point out it's, it's, uh, I find it striking that the Buddha is asking Megia not to leave him alone. Remember this person who had spent many years kind of in solitary retreat. So obviously I feel like he's trying to teach something to Megia. And then as in many of these stories, Megia asks again, I don't know the exact Pali, but probably something like, oh, come on, please. <laughs> Pretty please, like I, I really want to practice. Come on, it's a good thing, don't you think? I mean, this is how you woke up, Venerable One. And then the Buddha says again, I, I hear your earnestness, but can you wait till someone else comes up upon me? And then the third time, it's always good to remember, maybe you meet a Buddha and you want your answer. Third time, often he relents. Oh, come on, pretty please, Venerable One, this is a really good thing. And then the Buddha relents and he says, okay, Megia, please do as you will. Megia goes to the mango grove. And then the text says he's assailed by challenging thoughts and emotions. He's like overwhelmed in his meditation. I think he comes scampering back to the Buddha. <laughs> and he says to the Buddha something like, Venerable one, you'll never guess what happens. <laughs> I'm sure the Buddha said something like, really, is that so? Is that what happened, Venerable one, uh, Megia? And then, of course, the Buddha being a Buddha, and he launches into a teaching. And he says, just so, Megia, knowing the challenges that can happen in our experience and on this path, the one of the, the first foundations that's needed on a spiritual path is spiritual friendship. 
I find that so interesting. This is foundational. This builds the foundation. And the Buddha comes back to this again and again. Like he's, he's talking to all the monks one time. He says, listen, if other wanderers, other practitioners come and ask you what we're about, you know, you should tell them, tell them that one of our foundations for this path and this practice is admirable friends, admirable companions, spiritual friendship. It's that important. And I think often in an individualistic culture like this one is, there can be this thing of like, I should be doing this alone on my own. And I want to point out this path is different than that. Yeah, there's a place for solitude for sure. And there's a place for community, friendship. And on a couple different things, like when you reflect on it, as I just mentioned, it's community that helps remind me what is deeply valuable to me. Have you noticed, like me, how you can forget what your deepest values are? Or maybe having an aspiration of being in this world in a different and deeper way? I don't find social media really helpful for reminding me. I'm not on social media, so I guess I'm making an assumption here. But it's often communities of, of spiritual friends that I find these reminders of like, oh, yeah, I, I want something different in my life. And I need that in whatever form it takes, whether it's in person or on Zoom here. And this is what we're doing here at FIMC is we're coming together, hopefully, to, to remind ourselves and to remind each other of what's important about these brief li lives that we have. And it's also the fabric of, of Flagstaff Insight Meditation Community. All of you here on Zoom and in person, I just want to point out it, this organization, it's not some nebulous thing. It's created by all of us. Yeah. Of course, all of you on the board, but also everyone that comes. This is what makes it happen. And I want to be clear about this because sometimes I think, though, I should be cautious here, but um, sometimes the way communities are talked about, I, I almost feel like there's almost this push towards nationalism in this negative sense, like you have to be a, have allegiance to something and nothing else. And I want to point out that this community is not about that. It's about forming community in any way that feels supportive for you. So some of you, you know, you might have made connections here at the Sangha, and those connections continue, and you continue to come here. And for some of you, it might be that you meet a couple people, and you never come back here again, but those connections are onward leading. I feel like that's our mission as this community. Is it's not so much to have something rigid, but something more fluid. And again, it comes back to honoring difference and what, what works for you for spiritual friendship, for your life, and for your rhythms. So again, this huge spectrum of connecting the community, how does it look for you and how does it resonate for you? And then there's a second facet that I wanted to share with you because I think there's something potent about this notion, especially tonight as we transition back in person and keep this virtual world going. And that's the importance of place. 
particular physical places. Because they too remind me, sometimes differently, but in potent ways, the way spiritual friendship can remind me of what's important. Both kind of place in the biggest sense, and I'll get to this in terms of land, but also in terms of place of even sometimes objects that you might find in your, your house or the room that you meditate in, or as one practitioner I know, has a special closet that they meditate in. They need quiet from the family, and I think there's something so powerful about that. So on the small le level, just one example of this, of place, of physicality. <coughs> I have a, what's called a zabaton, which is a kind of a, some of you might know this if you're from the Zen tradition, it's kind of a mat that I meditate on. And it, it feels like it carries this potential to remind me of my connection with this path. Like it's decades old. It's, it has been washed for a while, so it has like you know, has the wear and tear of of meditating in, uh, on it, and I I feel like uh, when I take that into my heart, just different than my head, my heart, it feels you could say, and you can take this either poetically or figuratively or literally, it feels like it's imbued with my aspirations, like I've made so many aspirations meditating on that mat. It's imbued with my history. Boy, the struggles that have happened on that mat <laughs> with the whole array of emotions and situations and struggles. It's like I can feel it there. Oh, it holds that history for me. Like I've been through that with that mat. And it's like that, my, that mat, it's reminding me, it speaks to me of my intentions, my aspirations, and how long I've come on this journey. Something as simple as a mat can be imbued that way. Do you hear how an object like that can carry your practice forward? What are the objects in your life that carry your spirituality forward, that remind you? And I want to say that's a practice to imbue objects with that kind of meaning. I, mean, I, I think that's one of the things that this contemporary world has almost stripped us from is the world of imagination and, uh, and allowing the world to be imbued with something much more than just like, this is a map, a fabric. And yet when my imagination is involved, it brings to life a whole spiritual practice. And again, I'm, I'm not telling you how to hold that. It can be poetically or literally. What, what feels closest to your heart? What, what makes it alive like that? It's kind of like that mat is the external placeholder for the kind of placeholder in my heart that reminds me of what's deeply important for me. So what's that for you? And, and for those of you on Zoom, like what's that for you in your house or in the room that you're in? What reminds you of this practice? Remember that the Buddha describes this path as going against the stream. Have you noticed that? It feels like that to me. I need these islands of support, of external support. So I, I, I'm curious for you what that is, whether it's a candle or a flower or a cushion or a chair, 
what brings meaning for you in particular. We might have the shared value, but depending on how you're located, your life, what's meaningful, what's potent. And then on a larger scale, I want to talk about physical places, bigger places. In so much of Buddhism, place plays a significant role. And again, I think this is getting forgotten in the contemporary world. Much of it, I think, has to do with how we connect to and relate to land. Land has become inanimate in some way. It's something that is purchased. It's sold and bought and colonized. It's not me and you. It's something different. And there's so much suffering just around that, the way we relate to land. Whereas in the history of Buddhism, land was imbued just like my mat was. Particular places were imbued. For example, in the Pali Canon, this kind of this canon of literature that's the earliest segment of Buddhist literature. And, and in each and every one of the discourses, these suttas, it uh, shares where the Buddha is. When you read the beginning, that's how I heard the Buddha. He was in Jetta's Grove, which is this park, and Natapindika's park. He's in the land of the Kurus, this land called Kamasadama. He was on Vulture Peak giving a talk. Land is always mentioned, places mentioned, always. And just a, a side note, there is, I feel like I have to do these little, little, little things you might have noticed. We're doing a, a sutta study group. If you're interested in some of this earliest literature, uh, we're going to get together to discuss this just so you can expose to some of this literature and, and how to relate to it in a way that's hopefully meaningful. So again, this sense of the power of land. And I don't know if anyone's been to India, but many of these places are sacred Buddhist places, like Bodh Gaya, the place where the Buddha awakened. It's a pilgrimage place. Ultra Peak, you can go there. And for practitioners, it's imbued with something that reminds them of something deeper in their lives. It's a heart connection. In Tibetan Buddhism, Again, you know, I'm usually speaking from Theravada or early Buddhism, but I just want to share this because I think it's interesting. There's even a, a Tibetan word for this called ne. And often it's uh, translated as sacred place, but it doesn't really get to what's going on in the relationship to land. It's, it's more like a, um, a place that has spiritual power. So, for example, there are many caves on the Tibetan plateau that practitioners of old meditated in. And because of their practice, it's believed that it has a kind of nay to it, a kind of spiritual power. So people go and practice there. They'll go and do pilgrimage and practice there to also help fulfill that quality of nay. And there's all these, these practices around nay, like nay core, which is to go around a place of nay, of, of spiritual power in that way. It's... it's the, you could say it's the entire Tibetan plateau has this quality to it. Like one of the earlier um, kind of mythic stories is about a deity that is spread. She is spread over the entirety of the Tibetan plateau. So do you see how this is such a different notion of land? Land is literally alive in these earlier Buddhist cultures. It's not something inanimate. It's the earth herself that's living. 
And wouldn't that be so cool to live in an environment or a culture where you have all these reminders of what's most important about being a human being, that's reflecting some of your deepest values, that it's somehow living in the land because of how your imagination's been shaped. This too, I think, is so important. And for those of you, you know, wherever you're calling in from on Zoom or here in Flagstaff, you know, I'd be remiss to not talk about the land here around Flagstaff and to also reflect on this. If you're not in, in Flagstaff, to reflect on the land that you're on. Like here, as you know, this land is sacred to 13 different, different tribes, at least. And it is, you know, thought to have a certain spiritual power that deserves a kind of respect. This is why there's so much tension, for example, with the, the Hopi tribe and the ski area. It's because there's these clash of values, this value of what's sacred compared to uh, economic profit. We're amongst peoples, the peoples of this land that hold this, this land sacred. Please come on in. Yeah, and there's some uh, chairs here too, and there's a uh, a couple chairs there for you. Please come on in. And some of you, I don't know if you were there, and thank you so much for this, Sarah, because you, you did this joint talk with uh, Karen, which was so powerful. And I don't know if some of you were there, but Karen Smith shared with us about this uh, Navajo term, uh, hojo, and really quite powerful. And her experience on the Colorado River going to, you know, the sacred place, you know, for the Hopi, it's their, their Sipapu, the place that they emerge from, they emerged into the, 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 uh, onto this land. And for her, it was connected with that story she shared of the great mother, you know, sending the twins off down the river. And so I want to acknowledge, you know, for the native tribes around here, the idea of spirituality here and land here is just ridiculous, right? They're, they're intertwined. Even to say the word land implies a kind of spirituality. And I mention this not to co-opt, you know, kind of native spirituality. There's a kind of, there could be a cultural misappropriation with that, which I think is, can be very harmful, especially in the context of colonization. But rather to acknowledge and to offer respect for the land that we are on. And I think for me, it then opens up a place of what's your relationship to the land around you? Are there places around where you live that hold your spiritual practice? I think this is a really important question. It has to do not only with kind of place in this groovy way, but it has to do with reconnection with land, which, you know, in some critiques, this is what colonization and capitalism does to us is it separates us from land. And from a Buddhist notion, we could say, when I'm separated from land, I'm separated from my spiritual practice. And keeping that in mind, I want to say there, there is a place, you know, however you're socially located, you know, and I, I don't want to assume how you're all located in terms of, you know, native tribes. But for me, since I'm, you know, white, I still find this land around me to hold my spiritual practice. Like for me, one of the powerful things about this pandemic was I was actually home. As I've been telling people, it was 
since I travel and teach so much, I have not been at home for this length of time for well over 15 years. And some of that time during the pandemic, my partner and I were doing self-retreat out in the woods around here. And to start to have this connection with land, that it's, that it's speaking to me, it's reminding me of my spiritual values, of this Buddhist tradition for me. Where are those places for you? Where do you find that? How do you articulate that? What's the language for that that holds your spiritual practice? And I want to point out, for those of you kind of in these Buddhist traditions, it's part and part parcel of Buddhist traditions. It's just that sometimes in modern Buddhism, it gets left out. It's like, oh, we don't really understand that, you know? I mean, there's deities in the trees. How do, how do we understand that as moderns? That's an important question. How do you understand that? Not in a way that you have to literally believe that, but how do you translate that into your life? I think that's an important question if you take a spiritual path seriously. And then also I, I want to uh, circle back around to what's going on right here in the space, that here we have both this virtual world with all of you. So thank you to all of you who are here in this virtual world. It, it's, it expands our community and this physical space. And I know for me, coming back into this physical space, it was like this reminder. It's like, ooh, community, practice. This is what brings my heart alive. And, and it's like this space contains that. And it contains it because of all of you, all of us practicing here together, and because of our collective imagination. And how do we use, utilize that in a spiritual path? So lastly, I want to um, connect this a little bit of how we're going to move into practicing together. And we'll take a small break so you can move your body in just a minute, and then we'll meditate together here. But when we begin to meditate together, I'm going to invite you to kind of enter into the meditation in a little bit different way, which is to orient to your environment. And all I mean by this word orient in, in terms of at least the place I, I learned about orientation in this physiological sense is it's simply connecting with, you could say, the external environment through your senses. What we'll do is we'll start with that visually and probably audially because those are the two strongest, but there might be smells, the sensation of the, the coolness of the air, and then utilizing that to go inward because can, it can be such a great way of coming into the present moment. It's kind of like, um, have you seen a rabbit, you know, uh, a bunny rabbit, maybe even a tame bunny rabbit, and their rhythms around this are so interesting. They'll kind of chew on whatever, chewing some grass, and they'll munch, you know how their, their noses make this little, <laughs> cute little movement. And then, and then what, what they'll do is they'll stop eating, and then they'll look around, won't they? They'll eat a little bit, they'll look around. So every so often, methodically, they're orienting to the here and now through the environment. It's just, it's just how they're designed. Whereas what happened to us is like, we eat a little bit, and then we get lost in thought. We get eat a little bit and then we get lost in thought. Or sometimes we eat and we are lost in thought. <laughs> and there's not a lot of those spaces like the bunny rabbit of actually being here. Oh, oh, here I am again. Oh yeah, here I am in this room. Here I am on Zoom. Yeah, here I am. Oh, and again, yep. 
we can learn from bunny rabbits. Who would have think that you would have learned from bunny rabbits this evening? <laughs> Learning what it is to be present. And, and I mean it as an experiment, so it might land it, it might not, but it's important to experiment of what, what helps your meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.